Welcome to Life on Pause, a podcast defining the experience of being a young adult with cancer. Each episode, we explore issues impacting young adults in and after treatment. Like what you hear? Have something to add? Come join us for next month's recording, the third Tuesday at 6 p.m. Welcome to Life on Pause, a podcast for young adults living with cancer. This is your host for the episode, Brady Lucas. On today's episode, we have with us Cameron Benjen. Cameron, welcome to Life on Pause. It's great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brady. I really look forward to this. Cameron, I know right now you're at Penn State Health Cancer Institute. Can you share a little bit about why you're recording from here and a little bit of your background? Yeah, I'm here today for a weekly checkup after a bone marrow transplant. So back in September, I was diagnosed with myelodysplastic syndrome, excess blast 2, which required a bone marrow transplant or else the myelodysplastic syndrome would ultimately progress to AML. And I am now day 51 after my transplant and I had my Hickman removed, which is a central line through my chest on Monday. So things are progressing pretty well. And it's been a long time coming, but one that's very exciting to kind of reach that milestone and get the Hickman out of your chest. I was really worked up. The poor phlebotomist, I asked her for some orange juice because like, I really haven't had any sticks to my arm in like nine months because I've had the Hickman. So it was a little bit of a scene over there. But we got all the tubes drawn without me passing out. So it was a good, it's, it's a good day. We love to hear that. I'm, I'm so happy to hear that you're getting that removed from you as well as continuing to progress into a positive direction. For the listeners who do not know, can you walk us through a little bit of the process of a bone marrow transplant? Yeah, absolutely. So when I was diagnosed, my oncologist explained what myelodysplastic syndrome is. So it's essentially bone marrow failure. And everyone has these blasts, which are the cancer cells in their their blood, and your immune system takes care of them and removes them from your body, right? Something happened in my body where they're like, hey, we're not going to do this anymore. And they just progress, the percentage goes up. So the way to really take care of those is through, there's chemos and etc. But Myelodysplastic syndrome is typically occurs in older males, and typically there's just routine chemotherapy that they do because they don't qualify for a bone marrow transplant. So to start the process, you have all these labs done, which they identify your HLA markers in that you have in your body. And then they go to, if you have any relatives, they test them first because you want the closest match where in my case, we didn't really want to use my brother because we didn't know why my bone marrow failed. So he could have the same genetic problems that I have, but so far he's fine because there's so many things to genetically test and there's some genetic mutations that they don't have tests for, right? So then what happens is you find a match, hopefully, and I was lucky enough to find a match to someone from the United States. She's female. She's 30. I'm forever grateful that she decided to sign up on Be The Match to be a donor to a complete stranger. I hope to, um, after a year, 
you know, correspond and find out who she is. So then what happens after a donor is identified? You are then placed into the hospital inpatient and you have what's called conditioning treatment, which I got and I cannot pronounce all the chemotherapies, but I can tell you my conditioning regimen was flu psi, TBI, post-psi, which is I got budarabine, cyclophosphamide, I can pronounce them all, cyclophosphamide, total body irradiation. I had two sessions of that, which started at day negative seven. So let me explain that to you. I apologize. But what happens is bone marrow transplant day is day zero. And every day before that is negative, the further you get away. And then the further you get away from day zero, today is day 51 for me, plus 51. So you get a middle typically about a week before and you have this conditioning chemotherapy. And then day negative one, I had the two sessions of total body irradiation. And then it was bone marrow transplant day. And it was exciting because we waited for um, this for a while. I dressed up. I brought a dress shirt because it was a very exciting day. And my wife got me a cookie cake because I really like cookie cake. And it was very anticlimactic, right? Now it lasted 16 minutes and you could see the stem cells go down the line and into my Hickman. And then you just, that's it, right? And you just wait. And then as the days go forward, your white blood count will drop to, mine was almost at zero. They couldn't even measure any white blood cells because what's happening is that conditioning chemotherapy is making room in your bone marrow for those new stem cells to nestle in and hopefully with the intent to uh, find a home and then they will start to reproduce and then a couple days, I think like day four or five, you get what's called neupogen, which encourages these stem cells to produce and then um, once your counts start to come up and your ANC, which is your absolute neutrophil count, reaches a certain threshold that your doctor determines, you're discharged. And then you come to right here at Penn State to the infusion room every day and then every other day. But now I'm at every, it, just weekly. So it's long, but it's very exciting. And like I said, I'm just really thankful for that donor that I could go through with it. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I think it's helpful for the listeners to get a little bit of background about bone marrow transplants, and you would never be able to tell that you couldn't pronounce those names because you did it like a pro. It's amazing how good you get at pronouncing medical terminology when you deal with some of these illnesses. It is. like it, When you first are diagnosed, right? Like It's like drinking from a fire hose. Like They're throwing all these terms at you, and like you get admitted immediately and you're getting CT scans and echocardiograms and I make candy, right? So this is a completely different world from what I do in my day to day. But yeah, you learn really, really fast what a Hickman is. And it's funny, right? Like when a phlebotomist would come into my room, I'd be like, no, go talk to my nurse because you're not sticking me. So yeah, it's a very interesting time. Yeah, no, no, thank you. And I think Going back to something you just said there, obviously, earlier you were mentioning a sibling, you were mentioning your wife. I know previous to this conversation, we talked a little bit about your son. Can you talk a little bit about how they reacted when they found that you were diagnosed with MDS and maybe some ways in which you allowed them to understand fully what exactly their husband or their father was going through? Yeah, absolutely. So a little bit of background, 
I was diagnosed in September, and all summer, my health was getting, it was deteriorating, but I kind of was getting used to it. So, like, we have a, a smaller property, right? And I mow the front grass in the backyard, and I would have to take breaks in between this. And, like, I was just had all the shortness of breath. So I come in, I'm at church, and this, this story, faith has played a huge role in the outlook on this diagnosis and through the whole whole past nine months this storyline of just my faith and God has been faithful to us. I was at church and I sing on the worship team and the worship pastor looked at me, he's like, Are you okay? And this was September twelfth and I was like, actually no, I don't feel that good. I have a migraine again and I said I'm gonna go see my um BCP, personal care provider, tomorrow. And then at the next service my grandfather came to hear me sing and he brought the neighbor and the neighbor thought she was going to be going to his church. She stops me afterwards. Little did I know that she's a nurse. She stops me after church and says, you need to go to a doctor today. And I come to the emergency room and we sent my wife, who's Rachel, and she had my son, Sebastian. Um, it was picture week that picture. It was he's in kindergarten and it was picture day that week coming up. So we wanted to get him a haircut. He had a fun run over here at Shank Park. So we just thought that, hey, Cameron's going to go to the hospital and Rachel's going to check up with him later. So they're out doing their thing. I go into the emergency room and within one hour, the doctors were telling me that I had some type of leukemia and I needed a blood transfusion. Meanwhile, I'm all alone. Rachel and Sebastian, they're sending me pictures of his haircut. They're sending me pictures of him running his race. And all the while, they had no idea what was going on. So it was kind of unfortunate I was alone when I found out, but it was nice because I was able kind of to think through very like 40,000 foot level of like how to tell my wife. And when she pulled that curtain, she looked at me and we both think something was wrong. And I just told her I have leukemia because there's, you can't really sugarcoat that. There's, there's no sugarcoating. So I was in the hospital for a week and COVID was going on. So Sebastian couldn't come visit and like we FaceTimed and he's only five and a half. He was just turned five at the time and I was discharged and I came home and it was really exciting to see him. And what we started to do was we were taking all the plants downstairs where my wife was and we love plants. We give him pronouns. We're like, hey, he needs some water. She's looking great. Sebastian, this is something we do as a family. And we were taking all the plants downstairs and he started to lose it. Like he had a temper tantrum and he didn't really understand what was going on. And in that moment, I thought, you know, there's something that we need to do to explain to him what's going on. So I don't know how I thought of this, but I explained to him, you know, in your body, you have white cells, which are like policemen and your firefighters and your cops and they protect us, right? Because he, they're familiar with that. Every kid, when they're growing up, they say they want to be a policeman or a firefighter. And I explained that there's these blasts, which are the bad guys in my blood, and that the there's the police and firefighters, they're, they're not doing their jobs. The dirt of the plants can have bad guys and they can get into my body and they could potentially hurt me. So you could see it in his face. It really clicked like, oh, this makes sense. And he was running up and down the stairs, moving the plant. So that was really nice to be able to explain that to him. And then my wife and I, we made a conscious effort 
from the beginning that we're not going to just say I'm sick. We wanted to explain to him that I have cancer and that this is a different type of sickness because we didn't want him to associate being sick with you're going to get a Hickman in your chest and you're going to be going to the hospital and you have to spend overnight. And it was the right thing because we included him in our in our story, right? Because this isn't just something that happens to me. It happens to the whole family. And I think people forget about the whole family. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. And I also appreciate the way you went about that because knowing how important it is to include the child on care decisions even. And I know previous to this as well, you shared a little bit about including him on planning calendars. Can you share a little bit more about some of the different ways that you included Sebastian as well as your wife on the planning calendars? Yeah. We're an entire family of type A personalities. So my wife and Sebastian, they're very literal, right? So like we were joking last night, my wife like had this achieving moment where she's like, we learned how to color the fruits today, the proper color they need to be. An apple was red. And I was like, but it can be orange if it wants to. So we knew that we had to get Sebastian involved. And this really goes out to my wife, Rachel, because as a young adult, adolescent young adult, right, there's not a lot of resources out there. And that's what we unfortunately had to learn along the way which is ages 15 to 39, if you didn't know that. And Rachel was looking online at all these different resources, trying to find resources, right? So like the Leukemia Lymphoma Society has a little bit of information. Be the Match doesn't really have anything about parenting, right? There's a lot of education around bone marrow transplant. So the first, he loves reading. We've been reading to him since before he was born. So she found a bunch of books. There's actually one that we found, and I can send this to you, Brady, but It was actually a doctor that had some type of leukemia as a child, and now she's an oncologist, hemoc doctor, and she wrote this with her sister. And that really helps them because if you present learning in different platforms, right, this is through tech, he was able to hear that. And then my wife found this calendar online that it's a magnetic calendar, and it allows you to sit down on a Sunday. And you can fill this out. And it was something him and I would do. So I would put in like, I have to go to the hospital for an infusion room visit. And I would put that on there. And there was different like chemotherapy day, or if like you need some type of radiation, you there's stickers for that too. So the adult goes in and plans out their week. And then the kid, there's stickers from a, a kid perspective that they want to do with mom or dad or whoever their guardian is. So It could be craft time, or it could be reading a book. It could be having a family movie night. And then that way, he could look at this calendar and see what was going on. But the part that I really loved about it is that we were here, oh my goodness, four or five times a week. And my wife, she would come with me for like 99% of my appointments. And what that presented was a different person was picking him up from school every day. And like that caused confusion because... He needs consistency. And I think any other parent will tell you that consistency and having a schedule really helps the child thrive because they know what's coming, right? The unexpected is what really sets the child off and you're trying to like rein them back. So we would put on the calendar like nanny's picking you up or G's going to pick you up. So then he would know. 
And then the other thing that I think too, and that's for the child, but, and I know that we had a podcast about this, but it's called First Descent. They have these week-long programs for oncology patients, but what they also have, they have it for caregivers. So my wife is actually going to get to go this year out to Oregon, and it's a week-long kayaking trip with other caregivers, which I think is so important because we didn't know anybody else until I was inpatient 30 days for the transplant that were young adults, right? Like we're finding other young adults now, but she didn't know any other young adults. And it's really hard to relate to people that are like 30 years older than you, although you can learn, right? When they had kids, that was like years ago, right? A lot of things have changed since maybe they were diagnosed, right? Oh, I appreciate you touching upon that. And obviously we could go on and on about the caregiver side of things as well. I want to go back to some of the kind of coping mechanisms that you had. And I know one of the resources that you utilized was a child life specialist. Can you share a little bit more about child life specialists from the view of having a parent who has the disease teaching the child who doesn't have a disease? Because I think often when we think about child life specialists, they're talking to the patient directly that's a child, not necessarily the child of a patient. Can you share a little bit more about that? So my wife, she will find out the answer and seek help. And she's relentless in her pursuit for just making things right. So she knows somebody that is works here, I think on the sixth floor, another nurse. And this nurse got us connected to child life. And she, this child life specialist, she supports the seventh floor, specifically when you're inpatient. And she met with Sebastian three separate times. The first time it was, they made blood together, which was really interesting. So she got two specimen cups and she put in little red beads and there's white beads for red blood cells, white blood cells. She put in these little pipe cleaners for your platelet and they made a sample of good and then poured in glue to make it like plasma. And then they made another one that had these little green pom-poms that represented flat. He used that for about, I would say a good month. Like he carried that around and he would explain to people, you have this five-year-old that can explain to people, hey, here's what blood is. And the danger with, I will say, the danger with kids knowing what's going on is they make it really awkward. I think it's funny, like there's this sense of humor that goes along with having cancer, but he would make it awkward in conversation. So like we would be talking to another couple and like he would tap me with his uh, elbow and say, dad, tell him that you have cancer. And I'm like, Sebastian, you're making this really, really awkward. Um, or like he'd be like, hey, dad, tell him that you're going to be in the hospital for 30 days. And I'm like, Sebastian, that's not really something that you want to bring up in conversation, right? So they did that. And then they also gave Sebastian, I don't know if, if you've seen this from your, your time, but there's something called a chemo duck. And this chemo duck has, it's a port, but they also make them with Hickman's. And it's, it's more for children, right? But Natalie still gave one to Sebastian, uh, the child life specialist, which he was able to really see because he wasn't allowed to come here. But we got him in with child life specialists, which that's a whole nother conversation around. Like there's this mystery of not knowing. And once he came to the hospital, he had less questions just because he could see everything. And like at that age, they're absorbing and learning everything. And 
she was able to see the hospital. And like I said, if you're really good and quiet, I can sneak you past the infusion room. So we walked past the infusion room and he was able to see it. And I, there was some nurses and we said hi to him. But yeah, I think that's everything. Yeah, no, I, I love you explaining that. Because I think it's good for individuals that are listening to this in case they don't even know a child life specialist can provide the services like you just discussed. Flipping a little bit on the other side is a quote you gave me is said, I love to dream about making things better. What does this mean to you looking ahead as your day 51 post-transplant? You're looking to obviously what's for the future for Cameron as well as Rachel and Sebastian? My day job. I work in continuous improvement, which is essentially like making things better, right? And I'm just naturally wired that way. So when I was first diagnosed by September 13th, the next morning, I was so emotionally fatigued of sending text messages to everybody with updates, right? So I was like, there's got to be something out there where I can update the masses, right? And I didn't want to use Facebook because not everyone's on Facebook or social media. So there's this great resource that I highly recommend called Caring Bridge. And it's for any type of medical emergency or medical journey that you're going on. You can go in and have blog posts and update that. For me, who's someone's very outspoken, that really helped me cope by writing. Because it started out with updates where I'm getting Hickman today and I had my eyes dilated and there's no leukemia found in my eyes to more, this is how I see life now when mortality is brought into the picture. So I found out I love writing and that is something that's going to continue. And I'm actually writing a book right now about not just cancer, but just about my experience and I'm about 80 pages deep into it, and I'm really excited to just share that with whoever really wants to read it. Um, I'm just some guy from central Pennsylvania. Maybe people will read it, but it's just, it's more personal for me to get it out than it is for people to read it. So writing. The other thing my wife and I want to do is advance the marrow registry, and it's really education. Because what I found, and I'm sure when you talk to people um, being a fellow bone marrow transplant patient is that people don't know, right? Like we, they just don't know about it. And it's something that the, it, it's come so far and they've progressed so far 10, 15 years ago that it's, we're not drilling into your pelvic bone. We're not extracting bone marrow. It's through peripheral stem cells and people just don't know what that means. So what we want to do is educate people, but then we also want to expand the registry and specifically for people of color and minorities because I thankfully had a, I believe it's a 71% chance of finding a match where my brother-in-law, who is a person of color black, he only has like a 29% chance of finding somebody to match him. So that's something that we want to do. And I have some big ideas of how to do this. I think the, the one if anybody's listening, that's in policy and legislation for the government is that it absolutely should be included when you turn 18, like, or you go and get your driver's license, right? Like, it can just be a question that you're asked. Do you want to join the National Bone Marrow Registry? It's just expanding that. The other thing that we're working on and still in the infancy is creating a uh, support group for older young adults that might have children or they're just 
it's such a large age group, right? 15 to 39. So we're looking to create one here at Penn State for other AYAs in that older age group. And it's it's not bound to a specific type of cancer or caregiver. It's, and you don't have to be married. You can be single. It, it doesn't matter. But we found a few nurses that would be a part of this. So we, we got half of the the battle of finding um, an advocate to work with us. But that's something that we're looking to do in the fall because it's so important to be able to get your thoughts out. And it could be through like, I loved journaling and I love talking to people where somebody else, they might need to talk to somebody more in private, right? So I think the more platforms that we can create for people to be able to talk and cope, the better it will be. That's just a few of my big ideas, but I'm always like thinking about other things that we can do. I love it. I I love all the ideas you have. And there's such important pockets of people to hit that aren't being served right now. Can you share just real quick, how do you become a bone marrow donor if someone's listening and is interested in it? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a very, very simple process. In fact, once Penn State, my care coordinator for the transplant, put out the search on the bone marrow registry, I got a hit for myself to be a, a potential recipient because I was on the bone marrow registry. So what you do is you go to bethematch.org. There's a tab right at the top that says join. And you answer a series of questions and then they send you in the mail a swab kit. And you just swab your cheek twice with a Q-tip. You put it in the envelope with a barcode to identify that it's your specimen. You don't have to pay anything. You drop it in the mailbox and then you're on the bone marrow registry and you'll get a card in the mail. And then hopefully it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? Like you hope that you can help someone, but you also hope that you don't have to, right? So that's, it's just a very, very simple process to do. Awesome. Thanks so much for sharing that. I know we're running out of time, but one last question, I guess a two-part question. So what's the biggest piece of advice you would give a young adult going through cancer treatment or battling cancer? So the biggest piece of advice I would provide, mental health is so important. The week after I got out of being inpatient for the first time, I was using the bathroom and I passed out because I was anemic. The IV pole hit the door, my wife was in the room, It was just a very, very dramatic scene. And thankfully, we had a wonderful PA that said, you know, you guys need to take care of yourselves as well, right, mentally. And there's so many resources to get help with. Seeking a local counselor, therapist, right now there's such a huge backlog with the pandemic. But there's also so many other ways to get help, right? There's a lot of telehealth right now. I know a lot of employers have an employee assistance program that you can call and get help through. And just talk with your doctor, right? Like, hey, this is how I'm feeling. It might not always be, um, it could just be down. Mine was, right now I'm trying to find someone to talk with before I go back to work because I don't want to be jealous and upset at people for advancing. I want to be happy for them, but at the same time, I have, and I mentioned this before, I have FOMO, fear of missing out. Where like, I've been out of work now for about nine months. And when I go back, it's going to be a huge adjustment for me. So I, I, the biggest piece of advice is to seek out help. And 
it's not embarrassing and it's, 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 you don't have to be prideful. Um, it's just something that goes along with this life altering diagnosis of cancer. Yeah, I would agree 100%. I think that's definitely a huge point at home is the importance of mental health. And then part two of the question is, what is the biggest piece of advice as a parent with cancer? So as a parent with cancer, we chose to include him in the diagnosis, in our story as a family. I think that's so important because I know I've, I've heard of other people that, you know, they don't really tell their child and they think maybe they're too young to know. But God forbid something happens, right? Like cancer, there is a, there's mortality to it, right? Like I could have went into the bone marrow transplant and not have come out of the hospital. And I think it's important that your child's not left in this mystery fog that they know what was going on and that they are not caught off guard if something would happen, right? And we didn't, we would explain to him that, you know, because he always wants to like hug and like give kisses. And like, if he would get, especially now, if he would get sick, like I could potentially die. Right. So like we were very upfront with him and I'm not a, a, I don't have a psych degree. Right. But that's what we as parents chose to do is to include him. So again, I don't know if that's the right answer, but in our gut, that's what we felt was the best. I appreciate you sharing that. Cause I think that's probably a question that parents you know, and or as a parent with cancer that people get asked is how much do we tell? How little do we tell? Kind of the whole gamut of things. And I think your firsthand experiences as well as sharing anecdotes throughout the entire podcast discussion on the importance of it will help a lot of people. And I also think it'll help a lot of providers, whoever listens to this and people that may get diagnosed with cancer in the future and have children. There's a lot for us to grab from that. And it's, it's so important. We, we never want to lie to our child and they're going to see this Hickman hanging out of your chest or they're going to see that you have no hair or they're going to see that you lost a bunch of weight. And the questions lead to more questions and you have to think of more ways to cover it up and just coming out front and saying, hey, this is what's going on. It stops a lot of those questions, but it opens up more questions. So he can hopefully one day explain to others, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the biggest influence a child can have on another child is each other and having that friend support and kind of better explaining to them what cancer is. Because I think that's a huge thing we need to continue to do too, is the transparency, right? It's the transparency of allowing children to understand what some of the hard things in life are, um, but also being gracious during the process. I know we're out of time. We could talk forever back and forth and definitely would love to have you on again. Uh, Cameron, how can people get in contact with you if they want to learn more about your story, enter the registry, talk a little bit further about being a parent, et cetera? You can visit, you can go to Karen Britt and you can read the story. All you do is you search my name, Cameron Benjamin, or you can send me an email at B. J-B-E-N-D-G-E-N at gmail.com. That's my last name. And we can put that in the description of the podcast. But they can send me an email and we can talk from there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Cameron, for joining us today. We really appreciate your insight into being a parent as well as the bone marrow transplant process, being 
a husband, the whole entire gamut of things that we appreciate you just being here today. Great. Thank you for having me, Brady. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Life on Pause. Ideas or suggestions for future episodes? Feel free to share them with us. Join us for the next recording on the third Tuesday of the month. Until Until next time. time.